with reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of Eye on Travel for this first weekend of February 2024. Hope you're having a great time wherever you happen to be this weekend. Let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 39 degrees, 44 minutes north, 104 degrees, 59 minutes west. We are in Denver, Colorado at the Hotel Clio right here in Cherry Creek. And, of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. So much to talk about Denver, which we're going to do right after this segment with the Colorado governor, Jared Polis. But first, let's get to the news. Number one, of course, the continuing investigation into the Boeing 737 MAX 9. As I've been reported over the last month, right, this thing happened on January 5th, so we're coming up on a month. The NTSB is now investigating this and continues to investigate this, not as an incident, but as an accident. And what have they been able to do? Well, the good news is they've been able to rule out a lot of things. Uh, It's not materials. It's not design. And it's not structure. That's all very good news. But let me tell you what they've been able to rule in. They ruled that out. But what they've been able to rule in, it's manufacturing, installation, oversight, and inspection. There's a compelling reason why they had to shut down the assembly line at Boeing. Because it went right back down to who was inspecting the planes. Who did they work for? And what wasn't done? Of course, the bigger picture is the safety culture that doesn't exist the way it should within Boeing, uh, within Boeing versus the FAA, and within FAA versus Boeing. Something that goes back decades and needs to be addressed immediately because it's a long-term recipe for disaster. Now, the fact that they've been able to focus in on the assembly line means that they're not just looking at the assembly line for the Boeing 737 MAX 9. They now have to look at the assembly line of the Boeing 777, and the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, because the same inherent problems uh, exist, at least conceptually. Now they have to figure it out. Uh, What's going to be happening now? Well, uh, a lot of planes are not going to be delivered to their clients, otherwise known as the airlines. The airlines are going to be stuck trying to figure out their schedule, which they've been doing since January January 5th. And it's going to affect not only the way you travel and how you travel, but maybe even how much you pay to travel. Uh, In the short term, though, I've got some good news about airfares. They're still coming down. Everybody's been predicting huge rises in airfares for overseas travel. That hasn't happened yet. And guess what? Domestic airfares dropping. We've seen fares as low as $39 on some pop-up sites that are starting to come up now, so get ready for that. Obviously, there'll be some some restrictions during Easter and, and spring break and maybe President's Weekend, but the good news is it looks at least as if the fares are going to be coming down a little bit over last year, and boy, they needed to come down. They couldn't be sustained. Uh, now, another piece of news that just happened this week, the U.S. State Department issuing a Level 2 advisory to, to American travelers about going to the Bahamas. The murder rate in the Bahamas has spiked in the first month of 2024. And as a result, uh, they've issued this Level 2, which means uh, travel with increased caution. Uh, I don't really know what that means, except basic situational awareness. It wouldn't stop me from going to the Bahamas. But what they're actually saying is, you know, avoid public transportation, don't walk alone at night, um, or drive alone at night, 
Uh, and most Americans don't even stay, you know, stray from their resorts, so it may not be a, an, an issue. But it's out there anyway to make you aware of the fact that there's a lot of, of, of crime happening now in the Bahamas. Now, what kind of crime is it? Well, in addition to murders, it's gang versus gang crime, much the same way as it was and continues to be in Mexico, where tourists and travelers are not targeted, but you still need to know uh, the situation there. But there's another advisory out now, and the State Department has increased it to a level three for Jamaica. And a level three advisory means, it's a harsher advisory, it means reconsider travel. Again, gang violence in neighborhoods and parishes throughout Jamaica, uh, with the same advisory being don't walk alone at night, don't drive alone at night, and of course, uh, avoid public transportation. That's what's going on there. It'll be interesting to see how Americans react to this. Uh, Again, it wouldn't stop me from going to Jamaica, and it wouldn't stop me from going to the Bahamas. You know, I, I always say, if there's a riot in Cincinnati, it doesn't mean you can't go to Cleveland. I believe that still. And there are certain neighborhoods in New York I wouldn't go to late at night, and there are certain neighborhoods in Cleveland I wouldn't go to late at night. And guess what? There are certain neighborhoods or parishes or townships in Jamaica I wouldn't go to at night, maybe some even during the day. But it would not stop me from going to Jamaica. But at least I want to make you aware of the fact that the State Department has elevated advisories to those two destinations. I encourage you to read those State Department advisories and then go beyond that. Go to the British Foreign Office and see what advice they're giving their citizens. I tend to think they do a better job of uh, on-the-ground, cutting-edge information for their citizens, which also applies to you. So do both. It's always good to get a second opinion. And then go one step beyond that. Do what I always do. Go online. Obviously, the, the, the newspapers in the Bahamas are in English, and they are in English in Jamaica as well. They are in many foreign countries where, where English isn't even, isn't even a first language. But get the last two weeks of those two newspapers online, and then you'll know exactly what the local situation is, and you can then make an informed uh, decision accordingly. So I hope that uh, that works for you. As I said at the beginning, we're coming to you from the, the, uh, the Clio Hotel here, the Hotel Clio. It used to be the JW Marriott but it was renovated and reopened, and it's spectacular. What I love about it, of course, they've got a great restaurant, uh, a Sandoval restaurant called Toro, but the neighborhood, it's Cherry Creek, and uh, it's located close to my favorite burger place, and I don't even eat meat. I'll tell you why, but in a minute, it's called the Cherry Cricket, and when I go there, my test, by the way, of a great restaurant is any restaurant that can give me uh, a, a killer Grilled cheese with grilled onion sandwich on rye bread. And guess what? Not only do they have the best burgers in town at the Cherry Cricket, they make a very mean grilled cheese sandwich. Uh, Anyway, more about that later on, about what's going on in Colorado. But one other piece of news, and that is, for those of you who are going to the Super Bowl, uh, it's just been announced, and it's probably the worst-kept secret in Las Vegas, but on April 2nd, the famous 67-year-old Tropicano formerly home of uh, sort of members of the Rat Pack as well as the Sands. But the Tropicana is gonna not, is not only going to be closed, it's going to be torn down to make way for the new stadium for the formerly known as Oakland A's about to come to Las Vegas, which will almost complete the whole deal. They, they've got, of course, soccer. They've got the, the, the hottest ticket in town for hockey. They have, of course, the Raiders in, in football. And, uh, and now they're going to have the A's in baseball. Pretty amazing. 
about the transformation and the continuing transformation of Las Vegas. Boy, if the walls could talk at the Tropicana. I've, how many times have I stayed there since I first started going to Las Vegas in 1971? Amazing. But, of course, the hotel has seen better years. They've all been anticipating this, and now it's official. April 2nd, it shutters. So for those people going to the Super Bowl who want to have one last crazy bachelor party or Super, Super Bowl party in Las Vegas, the Tropicana may be the one that can probably trash the room. I, I'm not telling you to trash the room. I'm just saying I'm expecting it. Back with more from the Hotel Clio in Denver with the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg back with you as Eye on Travel continues from Denver, Colorado. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show. It's become a regular occurrence now every time we're in Denver, and we're always happy to see him and have him on the show, the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis. Governor, thank you. Peter, welcome back to Colorado. I know of all the destinations you visit, your favorite. <laughs> Sucking up will get you everywhere. <laughs> uh, but it's great to see you again, especially at this time of the year, because, hey, it's ski season. Everybody's on the slopes. Uh, and I want to talk about that, too, because if I take a look at the ski industry, uh, not just in Colorado, but in, in the whole West, uh, you know, we're dealing with climate change, global warming. Uh, are you getting good snow? So we have amazing powder right now. We had uh, actually travelers were somewhat inconvenienced over Martin Luther King uh, weekend because we had a record snows and we had. Did they close off I seventy? Of course, for a period of time. Which, they always close. But you know what? There's worse places to be trapped than oh we, oh no we have to stay in Vail or Aspen for another day. <laughs> God forbid, uh, it does happen. But no, we have amazing powder now. The weather's going to be gorgeous um, next week or so. And uh, it's it's going to be incredible. And you know, for those who um, uh, who visit, obviously our mountain resort destinations are great uh, for skiing in winter. But even if you don't ski, they're a lot of fun just with the culture and stores. And I ride going a on. mean lift. You ride a mean lift, and you know what? Many of them have gondolas. You can ride up, have lunch on the mountain, come right back down. Uh, for those who haven't skied in many many years, the economic model's a little different. Basically, you get a pass. Uh, it's usually about five or six hundred dollars if you if you're not going to go during the high periods. Of the Is that like the Epic Pass? Yeah, Epic yeah. and Icon. There's yeah. two. Yeah. Uh, they both are about half the mountains, and yeah. not just in Colorado, but they're international. Uh, as you know, Vale Resorts owns properties in Australia and Japan, and uh, it's the same pass. And uh, if you're not skiing during the high periods, it's only about 500 bucks for the whole year. Um, and if you're skiing, you want to ski whenever, it's usually eight, 900 bucks. But that's very different than how it was, you know, when I was a kid, where basically you bought every day a lift ticket, you know, and the people just don't do that anymore. It's probably 200 bucks a day, but why would you do that? If you ski three days, you buy a season's pass. So um, it's, a, it's a good economic deal. Uh, and have, have you gone skiing yet? Of course. We were up in Vail and Beaver Creek, uh, and I was in Winter Park a couple days ago. We actually actually took well, one of the cool travel experiences. We have a ski train from Denver to Winter Park. It's only two hours, and it's it's it was wonderful because I took it up, and 
while the while the passes were closed and cars couldn't get in or out, you can still take the ski train in or out. And it's a great Amtrak experience. It's a double-decker Amtrak, $59 from Denver Union Station to Winter Park. Well, now hours. you've opened the door because I'm a big train buff. Oh, cool. We're looking to expand this. This now, is a I want big to talk priority about this because, yeah. you know, if you go to Union Station here in Denver, once a day the Zephyr shows up, I think. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but that's it. So we are really, we're doubling down on this. So um, in the short term, that means, you know, over the next couple of years, two, three years, uh, we are looking to expand that mountain rail. I mentioned that ski train. So it'll also go Denver to Steamboat. Using the same track. Same track. It's existing track. Nobody's, you know, it's, it's very cost prohibitive to build new tracks. So this is track that has freight trains today. We're looking at repurposing it. There's some improvements we need to make. So you'll be able to go Denver to Winter Park. And we want to keep that right now. That's only only during ski season. We want to do that year round. Because these are, as you know, the mountain areas are gorgeous all year long, right? You go there in fall. You see the colors. You go there in summer. You can go. Well, you have the hiking, Rocky Mountaineer hiking. doing stuff all the way from here to Moab. That's right. And, and trains are great because... Uh, you know, you don't want to have, to, it, it, first of all, it saves people time and money. You don't have to deal with the traffic, right, if you want to go. And, but also, you know, for many of the activities, you just don't need a car. I mean, especially if you're going to have a mountain bike, if you're going on the mountain. Um, so it just gets in the way with the, the need to park it. So for many people, um, passenger rail is a great way to get there. We already have the ski trains for Winter Park, and we're going to be expanding that to Steamboat Springs, as well as up and down the Front Range. And you know about our wonderful Front Range cities from Pueblo, uh, you know, to Colorado Springs, which has the uh, the Olympic Museum. Same existing tracks. Uh, same existing tracks that exist today. We're going to be, over the next few years, developing uh, regular passenger rail over those tracks. So now let's talk about other tracks because we've talked about this for how many years oh, and, now and one more one yeah. more thing on this by the yeah. way people who haven't been to denver international airport recently might not know that we have tracks coming in right to denver airport oh, that's just, a good you idea. can go right to downtown denver that's already in place so if you get into the denver airport and you and it'll all be connected so within when we're talking about steamboat springs you'll be able to literally get there from denver airport to denver with and one change right of train exactly yeah one change but the other track story i want to talk to you about and and every governor wants to talk about it and yet it hasn't happened yet, for other reasons, I'm supposing. That's high-speed rail, right? They're talking about north, south, and California. They're talking about uh, Los Angeles to Las Vegas, but we've not seen it. Yeah, so that's that's you're talking many more zeros when you're talking that, yeah. right? So what we are talking about here is more practical. We're saying we're going to use existing rail. It's still, it's still, you know, it's hundreds of millions, but what it, it can beat the time of driving. So, you know, if you're talking Denver to, let's say, Fort Collins, it's about an hour drive. The rail should be about 45 minutes. So, you know, this will be an 80 mile an hour rail. Um, you know, obviously, you don't have to deal with traffic. Traffic assuming the freight place, trains, that's not, assuming that's not the freight trains pull over and let you go. Well, no, it'll be all scheduled with the freight company. So oh, they'll do it. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's, the, that's actually a lot of the negotiations. Because that's, that's always occurred. been Amtrak's problem. So I'll give you one of the examples. One of the reasons that the uh, Denver to Steamboat and Winter Park is, is, and, and Hayden and Craig are such good routes is we are no longer running nearly as many coal trains on that route to the coal power plant there. And, in fact, that coal power plant is closing in 2029. So think of all the capacity that that creates on the existing rail for where they have to used to run coal cars. They used to run four or five a day. Now there may be two a day. There's going to be zero a day in 29. That all is makes the increase of the availability for passenger rail on those same routes. So you can schedule around them. Absolutely. You can do that. And and uh, and, and we're also, of course, uh, making a lot of improvements in our roads. So, I mean, I think the key thing is people should know that a lot of these destinations in Colorado are really great year-round. I mean, if skiing's your thing, the winter's great, but we have fall, spring, and, of course, amazing Are you telling summer. me you have four seasons? We have at least four. <laughs> at least four. In fact, you know, what the, you know what the saying is in Colorado? If you don't like the weather, you wait 15 minutes. I mean, literally, we'll have, you know, it could be 70 degrees, and then half an hour later it could be snowing right so that's that's the colorado experience 
when we talk about travel and tourism, which is so much a big part of your economy, there's also the issue of how do you get staff, right? Um, not a Colorado problem, a country problem. Have you made inroads in that? Because from the private sector, that's their biggest problem. You see hotels right now operating at 70% occupancy, not because they can't do 100 they, but they don't have the staff to support 100. We are doing a lot of workforce housing initiatives, and particularly in our major tourism destinations. And yes, like other places in the country, you know, we have restaurants that might be open four or five days a week instead of seven like they might like to be because of staffing issues. We're working our way through those. Housing is the key. Housing is the key. So I was just at a workforce housing project in um, uh, in Grand County, uh, where they're building over a hundred homes. Uh, these are for, you know, people who work. I was in a dorm style one that I visited as well in winter park. And these are for the seasonal workers. So it's kind of all of the above. So, but th- you have to provide a lot of housing now. The, the, yeah, the market rate housing is out of reach for people who work in the resort communities. And so, there's often so how, not, do they, how do you fo- solve that? We're doing it. I mean, we're building housing. So in conjunction with the cities and towns, uh, and the state is helping in this too, we're building workforce housing. So this is a form of housing that um, has a lower rent where people who work in the community can live, whether it's for a seasonal workforce, more dorm style, they're in there three months, or whether it's somebody who might be lived there for years and even have a family themselves. Now, having said all that, and looking at the numbers from 2022 and 2023, those are all great numbers in travel and tourism. Right, airfares have never been higher. Hotel rates have been at historic highs. Is that sustainable? Well, look, we, we, we don't want airfares to be high. In fact, right. Colorado is actually a good value to visit. If you look at Denver International Airport, we have a lot of comp- healthy competition there. So uh, Frontier and United, are, of course, the big two, but right. uh, all the major carriers go in there southwest. Um, so. Uh, it's good value to get to. That's one of the things we tout for, you know, convention business and tourism. Uh, but yeah, things are great in, in, in Colorado. I think like a lot of places, uh, especially our mountain areas have done incredibly well. Um, Colorado Springs has done well. Like a lot of cities, you know, the convention business just hasn't returned the way it, it was before yeah. the pandemic. And I don't know if it will. It's it's sort of increasing, but it's not what it was in 2017, 2018. And for Denver, that was a big part of the mix. But there's so many other reasons to visit Denver that I think we're able to get past that. But when you take a look at your airport, right? Beautiful, yeah. You know, the, people forget that Denver is basically the newest airport we got in the United States. And how old is it? And we just sunk another, uh, we put another uh, billion into it. Um, incredible improvements. That you've, if you've been there recently, almost done. Not completely done yet, by the way. Still a little bit of construction going on, but some great improvements occurring. Because I remember Wellington Webb, when they were first building that airport, I was there with him, I don't want to tell you how many years ago, and DIA in those, t- in those days stood for doesn't include airplanes, the runways were sinking. The baggage machines were eating the bags. You've got your act together now. Uh, it's an amazing airport. It's consistently rated one of the top uh, North American airports. It's also become one of the busiest because of that. And as I said, hub to major airlines. Uh, international travel is increased. We've been focused on gaining additional international routes from uh, from Denver. And, and uh, I want to talk really to you about that story. when we come back. We're talking to Governor Jared Polis here in Colorado. Uh, that's how I'm noticing that at the airport as well. You're getting a lot of nonstop business now from overseas, which you never used to get before. We are, and 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 you know the and that and for for the tourism industry, that's a that's kind of a, a high dollar value tourism when you get people uh, whether they're from Asia or, or Europe or South America. It's generally folks that are going to be larger spenders than uh, folks who might be driving or or, or domestic travelers. Jared Bullis, the governor of Colorado, stick with us. We'll be back with more right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. And we're back, Eye on Travel, continuing from Denver, Colorado. Peter Greenberg here with you, along with the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis. Governor, you know, it's one thing to say the airport's the busiest airport, at least relative to where it used to be. Um, I happen to like the airport. Um, I actually get to where I need to go. Uh, the airlines, especially United, building all these new lounges, which people can actually get into, as opposed to the, the other problems at other airports around the country. I guess the question becomes a bigger question about what happens when the system breaks down, not just in Denver, Miami, New York, everywhere else. We still don't have a passenger bill of rights. Well, uh, you know, and that's federal, obviously. And I used I to know. be in Congress, and I <clears throat> used to be uh, involved with these issues. That's, I would, that's why I'm asking. There you go. No, I, I would add one key thing is the redundancy that our market offers. Uh, for instance, Colorado Springs Airport has also been growing very fast, Southwest being the major operator there. But and by the way, may I remind everybody that Southwest Airlines 20 years ago said they would never fly to Colorado, ever, because when they once came here, they, that Colorado is responsible for 25% of the airline's delays. Well, they're here now. Yeah, and a lot of that is the technology that's yeah. frankly improved um, uh, with regard to, we have, uh, I mean, you know, you look at the inherent weather conditions and you look at airports that have been hubs like San Francisco and the conditions they have there almost every day with fog. I mean, so Denver, uh, we're known for our clear skies in Colorado. So regardless of the temperature, I think we have 300 days of sunshine. Uh like anywhere, obviously, when there's, you know, heavy precipitation, um, there can be de-icing and delays that need to occur. But we we have a pretty good ratio there. I think that's one of the reasons United's continually expanding in our hub. I mean, when you compare it to their other hubs like Chicago, uh, we perform better on on time. Well, speaking of United in Colorado, the rumors are rampant that United may be moving their headquarters from Chicago to Denver. Well, they are expanding their footprint here. One thing that, that I didn't realize until recently is all pilots across the entire United system come to the Denver area for their ongoing training. They so, have the simulators here. Exactly. So pretty much if you're a pilot, you, you have to, you know, you have to keep your credential updated. So I mean, I don't know whether it's five days a year, whatever it is, three days a year. You basically, every pilot in the United system, no it's matter where they are. current training. They, go. they, they come to Denver. And, and, uh, and United has invested and expanded that facility. Uh, they are expanding their footprint here. Uh, I think they, uh, along with many other operators, love our market, obviously, um, but also uh, they love the business climate here and are looking to expand here. So basically what you're telling me is there's somebody knocking on the door looking for some tax incentives? Well, you know, we, we welcome everybody here. And again, <laughs> That's a nice said, answer. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, obviously the, the, we're thrilled that they're expanding their jobs here, right? Whether it's yeah. the corporate suite or not. Um, that's a smaller number of jobs, but they are expanding hundreds of jobs here uh, in Colorado, and we're very excited about that. And, of course, you mentioned the other two airlines, Frontier and, and, and Southwest. And Frontier's headquartered in Colorado as well. Right? I know, and yeah. they have their simulators here as well. That's right. Smaller uh, scale, a little smaller scale than you Little United, baby yeah. smaller scale. But right now, I mean, even Frontier is expanding. They are, and, um, and and there's a lot going on in that discount carrier space, as you know, with uh, Spirit and, and 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 a lot happening. Um, Frontier is is and, and and the discount carriers. Um, you have to know what you're getting. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but it's great value, right? Especially have you, you flown them? Of course, I've flown them. Absolutely. I well, you know, I used to commute to Washington every week for Congress uh, before I was governor, so I would fly whichever whoever the most convenient flight, which was roughly uh, you know United half the time, Frontier a quarter of the time, Southwest a quarter of the time. Um, all out of all out of Reagan. Uh, uh, when I could, right? Yeah. But if I only could get, if I, the flight schedule only allowed yeah. me to get out of Dulles or Baltimore, I would. So I, you know, you gotta, you gotta get out. Well, when you speaking get of out. Congress and airports, I remember when Larry Pressler was the senator from South Dakota, and all, and he was on the the Senate Aviation Committee. All of a sudden, 
Within 24 hours, every U.S. airline was flying to South Dakota. And nobody was going to South Dakota. And then he lost his chairmanship 24 hours later. Nobody was flying to South Dakota. There you go. You know, and, and I'm a good, uh, like probably you, I would guess, uh, as a frequent traveler, I'm a carry-on only guy. I assume you are, Peter. Is well, there are you? only two kinds of airline bags, carry-on and lost. You know that. There you go. So uh, for, for us, uh, Frontier is a better value proposition. As you know, they, they charge for baggage. I'm, and United might even at this point. I don't know because I'm, uh, you know, premier with them and I don't check. I haven't even checked. But I, I we always carry on. And, um, and, and uh, we're thrilled to have the competition and service in our market. And even for Denver Metro residents, the Colorado Springs Airport's only about an hour, hour 10, hour 20 minutes away. So when you're looking at fares, you can absolutely consider that as well. And do you shop for the fares? Well, I, I, I don't travel as much now that I'm governor. <laughs> I, it's, it's a little bit harder. I get, you know, maybe a couple times a year I get out of state. Um, but I do uh, enjoy that. And it's usually for work, obviously. I'll be going to Washington for the National Governors Association uh, in February. Um, one other thing I wanted, a couple of things I wanted to tell in Colorado. We also, uh, as I was just recently chair of the Western Governors Association. I worked on geothermal energy. But one of the reasons we have such opportunity in geothermal is we have hundreds of hot springs across Colorado, which are really fun to visit. So we have everything from commercialized hot springs like um, Indian Peaks and many others. But we also have ones that you can hike to that are uncommercialized and natural and are, you know, 95 degrees. So you can sort of Google that hot springs in Colorado. If that's your cup of tea, you know, that's great in winter, great in summer. It's just a, a fun, a fun way to explore the state. You sound like a governor who gets out of the office. We try, as I said, I, I uh, hope to get skiing again in the next couple of weeks, but uh, it's a, it's a job that is uh, all consuming at times. So it's a little bit harder to get out than I might like, but I do travel the state professionally as well. So if I'm doing meetings and signing bills in a certain part of the state, I, I try to incorporate um, some kind of experience into that as well. And just to recap, when do I get a chance to jump on that train? Uh, well, the winter, the, 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 uh, the ski train is running now. Winter Park every morning leaves at, uh, I believe, 7 in the morning from Union Station for the next month or two. We're going to build it to year-round and expand it to Steamboat. I would say in the next three years is roughly the time frame we're looking at expanding that service. But it is available during the high ski season today to Winter Park. Wow. Governor Jared Polis, State of Colorado, always a pleasure to see you. I, I would say I'd see you on the slopes, but I would just be riding the lift. There we go. Let's, you can ride it up and ride it down, whatever you like. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks, Peter. Take and we'll care. be back with more from Denver as Ion Travel continues right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Welcome back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you, coming to you from the Hotel Clio, right here in Denver, Colorado, on this first weekend of February 2024. Of course, you can always reach out to me, peter at petergreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question or problem, we'll solve it here, right here on the air. And by the way, speaking of problem, my next guest knows all about it because he's the Senior Aviation Fellow from the American Economic Liberties Project. And earlier this week, they basically issued a new report that called a new approach to regulating the airline industry. When was the last time you heard the word regulation? Since 1978, when it became deregulation. And what's happened in the last 45 or 46 years? My next guest, Mr. Bill McGee. Welcome back, Bill. Peter, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So let's talk about this. I mean, you know, since deregulation passed as an act of Congress in 1978, 
The only people who can get involved in controlling airlines is the federal government through possibly the U.S. Department of Transportation, but no state government, no state attorney general, no individual can have any say. It's sort of called the federal preemption. If it's not done on the federal level, it doesn't get done. And we see where we are right now, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. That federal preemption clause, that was a real kicker. That They added that at the last moment in 1978 when they were signing off on deregulation. And as you said, uh, the states have virtually uh, no authority. When I, when I speak on this, uh, people are shocked to realize that just as an average American citizen, you have fewer rights interacting with an airline than you do with virtually any other company or industry you can think of. You can't just go and file a class action suit in state court like you could against any other travel company or virtually any other company. That's just one of the problems that we've seen in the last 45 years. And of course, what we've seen in the last, let's say, two years is the reintroduction of the word oligopoly when it, when it comes to talking about the, you know, the big airlines here in the United States. Uh, you know, are, they, are they too big to fail? Are they too big to control? And whatever happened to passenger rights? No, you're absolutely right. You know, it's funny you bring that up because, as we know, uh, recently a federal court in Boston struck down the uh, the proposed merger between JetBlue and Spirit. And I was really shocked. The, the judge, Judge William Young, who was appointed by President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, he used that term, oligopoly. He used it. He, he referred to the, uh, the big four, which control, as you know, with their regional partners, about 80 percent of the market. He referred to them as an oligopoly. Now, look, Peter, let's, let's be clear. This is not what we were promised way back in 1978. Um, I, I, one of the things I wanted to do about a year ago when we set out on this, this project, I, I wanted to read source documents. I didn't want to read what others had to say or what others had to think. And, of course, the first place I started was with the legislation itself. And I, I actually emptied out the first page, and I kept it on my desk for the last year. And basically, what President Carter signed off on in 1978 was the promise that there would be more competition, more carriers, more less industry concentration, okay, and that more air carriers would not unreasonably increase prices, reduce service, or exclude competition. Well, let's start the conversation there. That, to me, is a litany of broken promises because everything that was promised in 1978 has not come to bear. And, of course, now you have, um, and this is not new, uh, you have Fortress Hubs. You know, you have Dallas yeah. for American. You have, you know, Atlanta for Delta. You have Chicago and maybe Denver for United. Uh, and and they really control those hubs. If you live in those cities, those airlines can reasonably expect, in fact, they're, they're banking on, that you're probably going to fly them. Right, exactly. And that's what we set out to look at, you know, um, you're right. We're using we're using a dirty word for a lot of people in history, right? The R word, regulation. Uh, really, there, it was not even a topic, as you well know, that was even up for discussion for much of the last 45 years. Uh, I, I want to be clear. Uh, I co-wrote this uh, white paper, How to Fix Flying, A New Approach to Regulating the Airline Industry, with uh, Ganesh Sitaran from uh, Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. And, and we set out two different perspectives, you know, uh, as you know, my history, and I worked in the industry as an operations manager, became a journalist and an advocate. He's a professor, and he, he analyzes industries, and he analyzes regulation. And um, we both sort of came to the same conclusions. And 
what we're really hoping to do, I know it's a, it's a big mountain to climb. We get that. But what we're hoping to do is launch a national conversation. Because when you look at it, there really hasn't been a national dialogue about, we all agree it's a vital industry, it's a critical industry, but I would also argue it's a broken industry. And we haven't really talked about that as a nation for 50 years. You know as well as I do. What do we do? We play whack-a-mole, right? Uh, you know, uh, this time last year, we were talking about Southwest meltdown or the, the NOTAM meltdown. You know, two years ago, we were talking about canceled flights. The year before that, we were talking about the uh, the lack of payment of refunds. With, with Bill, hold on to that COVID. thought for a second. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Bill McGee from the American Economic Liberties Project about a new move to possibly re-regulate the airlines. Back with more from Denver right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Eye on Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Eye on Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And welcome back. Peter Greenberg here with you from the Hotel Clio in Denver. We've been speaking to Bill McGee, the senior fellow from the American Economic Liberties Project on aviation. And the new paper that they just wrote just came out earlier this week, How to Fix Flying, a new approach to regulating the airline industry. There's so many things in this report, Bill, whether it's concentration at the hubs, whether it's anti-competitive moves, whether it's what we call EAS, essential airline services, essential air services. We've seen air services in, in communities in America America disappear over the last year. Places like Toledo, Ohio, American United and Delta, they all pulled out. If you live in Toledo, Ohio now, you have to drive to Detroit to fly anywhere. That also applies to anybody wanting to get to Toledo, Ohio. And that's just one example. Does your does your report cover this as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 you nailed it, Peter. I mean, we're we're using the term regional inequality. Both Ganesh and I wanted to tackle this. What we've seen really over the last twenty five years, among all the changes and all the, the problems that have arisen, is in my view, we sort of have two airline industries in the United States. We have one in which if there's competition from low cost carriers and ultra loss carriers, then you may, you know, you may benefit to a certain extent. But we have seen in markets where this let's take the big three, American, Delta and United, where they don't compete with anybody but each other. To me, it's one of the big untold stories of the last 20, 20 years. You and I remember airfare sales. Remember when they bashed each other's brains out? They stopped doing that about two decades ago, right? If it's only them competing with each other, then you're paying the highest fares in the country. And so that term regional inequality, it takes a lot of form. I mean, you just mentioned a critical one. Cities that have lost air service altogether. That was never supposed to happen with deregulation. Then you have, you know, the cities that don't have, or, or communities, uh, particularly rural and uh, and uh, smaller communities, you know, that don't have ultra low cost carriers or low cost carriers, and they're paying through the nose for fares, and you spend all day going there. I'm planning a trip to Montana from New York, and it take me all day to get there and all day to get home. Uh, but another manifestation is it's not just rural communities. You mentioned Ohio. Ohio once had four different hubs in four different cities from four different carriers, 
and they lost all four, and today they have none. And when a city like St. Louis or Cleveland or Cincinnati or Pittsburgh, looking major cities with major league baseball teams, when they lose a hub, they lose jobs. They lose they, corporations pick up and move out. They're not going to have their salespeople taking four flights a day when they could be taking two. Okay, so let and me, so well, let me ask you a question. I'm going to do devil's advocate here. If I'm running an airline, don't I have the right to figure out where I can make the most money and, and get the most for every individual seat? Why wouldn't I want to move an airplane from, an, from one city to another if I can make more money in another city. Sure. I, I would say to you that it's not that airline CEOs are dumb or they don't know how to make good decisions. But unfortunately, the decisions they make are good for them and their shareholders and not for the rest of us. And that's the real crux of it. This is a utility as far as we're concerned, and it needs to be regulated like a utility. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, if you're the CEO of American, then we knew when they acquired TWA that they were going to close the St. Louis hub, right? Everybody knew they weren't going to have hubs in Chicago, St. Louis, and Dallas, right in a row, a couple hundred miles apart. It's a decision that made sense to them. It didn't make any sense to the city of St. Louis. And they're still suffering 20 years later from losing that hub. Now, the thing is, we're on the hook anyway. I had someone say to me the other day, what do you want to do, socialize the industry? And I said, well, I guess you missed you know, the news for the last couple of years. It's already been socialized. We, the taxpayers, bail it out whenever it needs bailing out, as we did most recently during COVID for $54 billion. We're saying this needs to be run for the greater good. And, you know, the regulated era from 1938 to 1978, it gets beat up a lot. And I'll be honest, even, you know, even though when I, I started working in the airlines in 85, I was just always told, oh, you never want to go back to that. It was a mess. There was a lot more sense to how routes were served. In other words, if there was, you know, a sizable population, then there was, you know, there was enough service um, to, to meet their needs. And there was a lot more sense in pricing. Imagine that. Imagine not having 7 billion airfares loaded into uh, reservation systems. Imagine pricing that's based, for the most part, on a network model on cost. We haven't seen that in 45 years. If somebody can explain pricing to the average, uh, you know, passenger, I'm sure they'd love to hear it. But right now, it's, you know, I mean, you know, as well as I do, the person next to you could have paid $100 more. The person on the other side could have paid $75 less. And that's the problem that's been with us for quite some time. Uh, you know, and, and on any one given seat, you could have 34 separate fares. But then again, I got to be devil's advocate. Why wouldn't the airlines want to do dynamic pricing? Why wouldn't the airlines want to maximize the revenue they can get from any one seat based on supply and demand? See, I don't have an issue with that, Bill, as much as I have an issue with just basic passenger rights of being able to go from one airline to another, one airport to another, uh, and have you know, my bags actually arrive. Right, right. Well, I mean, look, this is a, a paper that tackles a lot of issues. And uh, as you said, we have, I would, I would say roughly in three parts, we address the direct issue of regulation of uh, not civil aeronautics board type of regulation uh, like we saw prior to 1978, but what we think is some sensible uh, decisions to be made in terms of um, limiting domination at hub airports and looking at pricing in certain markets. But we also look at um, consumer issues. We look at safety issues. So this is an industry that really has lost its way. I and I you. would say, I would, argue, I would argue that a lot of it goes back to deregulation. We would, there was no incentive in the regulated years to cut corners on maintenance, for example. The things that you and I have talked about, sending aircraft out, you know, for outsourcing to El Salvador for repairs. There was no incentive prior to that. Now it's a mad race to the bottom on cost. I hear you. Bill McGee. Our good pal from the American Economic Liberties Project. If you want to see the report, check out their website, economicliberties.us. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We have a lot more coming, and the subject's not going away as Ion Travel continues from the Hotel Clio in Denver. 
right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome back to Ion Travel for this first weekend of February 2024. If you're just joining us, first of all, I hope you're having a great time where you happen to be this weekend. Let me tell you where we happen to be this weekend. Get out those maps. 39 degrees, 44 minutes north, 104 degrees, 59 minutes west. We're in Denver, Colorado at the Hotel Clio, a great new hotel. Used to be the JW Marriott, then they really spiffed it up. And of course, uh, right here in Cherry Creek, we're about 23 miles from the Denver airport, which is also got its act together, even though they're getting more and more flights there. It's an airport that, in my mind, actually still works. And, uh, of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. A lot of things I want to talk about these days, one of which affects a lot of people who travel and stay at hotels. I think it's now we need to reconsider room service. Now, it's been in existence for you know, a few hundred years, right? Uh, people love the idea of paying a premium to be able to dine in their room. It's a, it's a, it's a luxury item. Um, you expect to pay more on the menu. Uh, there are other charges involved. Uh, hotels are now trying to tell you everything's going to get delivered between, you know, before 20, 30, 25 or 30 minutes. That's all good. But a lot of hotels have ended the service, even though room service tends to be growing in popularity and, of course, getting more and more expensive. Now, the latest data that most hotel guests spend on average more than $100 for room service, and that's even for a simple order like a club sandwich or a, or a cheeseburger. You know, by the time you add a soft drink in and maybe a salad and then, you know, the delivery fee and the room service charge and the tip, now you know why you're in triple digits. But a lot of smart travelers are still doing room service, except they're not ordering it from the hotel. They're ordering outside. And what's the most popular menu item for them to order outside? It's pizza. Now, it's often faster than 30 minutes from the hotel. And even with a delivery charge, it's, and of course, throw in the tip, it's substantially less than hotel room service. You want to know how much? An average hotel room pizza, by the time you add up all the other ancillary charges, it's going to run you 47 bucks. You know what a, a pizza from Domino's or any of the other pizza places, or, you know, Papa John's, any of those, with tip, about 20. So you know what? You can do the math. All right. Now, speaking of doing the math, it was topic A before the pandemic. It's topic A again. It's over-tourism. Every country now that's confronting it is trying to figure out how to handle it, how to limit it, how to make it financially consequential. And uh, we all know about what happened in Venice, when they announced a five-euro fee to enter the city for anybody who couldn't prove they had a hotel reservation. They were doing that to try to stop the day-trippers. Did it really stop them? It did not. Uh, that was just the cost of doing travel for them. Now they've expanded the rules. Starting this June, Venice is now going to ban loudspeakers and tourist groups of more than 25 people. 
All right? And I love this one. They've even imposed a speed limit on the canals. That's right. No more racing gondolas. <laughs> but we're not done in Italy. Florence has now banned any new Airbnbs. Rome is now uh, ban- uh, banning men from being shirtless in public. And Portofino, this reminds me of what, what Las Vegas just did, Portofino now has no waiting zones in popular photo op spots on highways with fines up to nearly $300 if you're that determined to take a selfie that you stop. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, they just did this in Las Vegas. There's now a rule saying it's illegal. Uh, you know the little bridges that cross the Strip? Think about what's happening during Super Bowl weekend. And that's next weekend. What's going to happen when people are crossing those bridges over the Strip? It's now illegal for you to stop and impede other people from walking, of course, to take that famous selfie. But by the way, you could also get a ticket if you just stop to tie your shoes. So just keep walking. And uh, so there's another one. It's, it's crazy, and it's not going to get any better for, for a while. That's what they're doing, and it's, uh, <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me that, that they actually think they're going to solve it that way. It really doesn't. Now, one more thing, if you're planning your summer vacation now, and you should because the numbers are looking very strong. Uh, I mean, if you're looking at a cruise line, Carnival's already reported that three-quarters of their cabins have already been sold for 2024, and it's only February. Uh, National parks are now starting to take reservations, and in fact, they're demanding reservations in order to go there. Uh, And something that you should know because there's something else. You know, we all want to, you know, pick our national parks based on seasonality or how crowded the parks might be. But there's another metric that a lot of travelers have to make. How accessible are the national parks for people with disabilities, especially folks with mobility issues? You know, which national parks are the most accessible for wheelchairs? Well, the most wheelchair-friendly national park is Badlands National Park in South Dakota. They have three wheelchair-friendly trails, which are really good. And... Most of their restaurants can also accommodate wheelchairs. Grand Canyon National Park does well. It's got two dozen wheelchair-friendly trails. That's about 10% of their total trails, by the way. And Yellowstone, which, by the way, they're they're starting to take reservations right now. Of course, they touch on three states. Uh, They have 16 accessible trails. They have the most. But if you have a mobility issue, you might want to avoid Pinnacles National Park in California because it has... No wheelchair-accessible trails. Uh, If you go to our website, petergreenberg.com, we've got the full list, and that might be very helpful to you. Uh, By the way, there's some other ones, right? Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota, not good. Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado, not good. Uh, The Zion National Park in Utah, not good. Uh, You know, the one thing you don't want to have happen is to hope that you can go somewhere Bring your wheelchair and enjoy a national park only to find out that you're so limited in where you can go. So check that out. It's important. And, uh, you know, we forget about this. But 19% of the American public has a, has a mobility issue or a physical disability issue. It could, be, it could be sight, it could be hearing, or it could be mobility. But the point is they deserve to enjoy everything that we do. And, uh, you know, whether you have a mobility issue or you know somebody who does, Make sure they get this information because you, you want to have a great summer and you don't want to be limited. Uh, one more thing to think about, and we're going to talk about this on the show next week because it, it's happened all last summer, and it's one of the more confusing things you can think about. 
And that is the sticker shock that happens when you get home from your trip and you get your mobile phone bill. That's right. It's, uh, we're all unwitting travelers when it comes to this with staggering international phone and roaming charges and not just phone charges, data. You know, there are a lot of, of phone companies that will tell you you get free data. Uh, yeah, they limit it, though, and they limit the speeds. And most people just aren't aware of it, and they come back home, and we're talking, you know, $500 to $1,000 on a monthly phone bill because you decided to go to Europe and, uh, and text your friends. So we're going to find out about how you're going to swap out your, your, your SIM card with somebody else and actually make yourself not a victim of the sticker shock of mobile phones. Speaking of sticker shock, my next guest coming up after the break, one of our regulars, Mike Boyd from the Boyd Aviation Group out in Evergreen, Colorado, on an update again on the air traffic environment, the air travel environment, and what it means to you. Back with more from the Clio Hotel in Denver, Colorado, as Ion Travel continues right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you as we continue from the Clio Hotel here in Denver, Colorado. You can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Joining me now, and of course, we're in Denver. He's not that far away, but uh, I have to think about him because he's a Colorado guy. One of our regulars, Mike Boyd from the Boyd Aviation Group or Boyd Group International. Mr. Boyd, welcome back. Thank you very much. Honored to be here. So we have so many things to talk about. We can start and finish with the FAA if you'd like, because, because it's a story that I've been on, as you so well know, for about 30 years. And it's a story that continues to not be solved. It's a story that the problems are still readily apparent. They haven't gone anywhere. It's, they're not new problems, uh, whether it deals with air traffic control staffing, whether it deals with inspectors and who they work for in terms of certification and safety. Uh, it, it has to do with maintenance and, and who's doing that inspection. So let's start with that. I mean, here we are in the year 2024. We have air traffic control centers, a number of them, where they're doing mandatory overtime because their staffing thresholds are below the 85% level. I think you and I would both agree that air traffic control is probably one of the jobs other than maybe brain surgery. You don't want anybody working overtime. Uh, no, you don't want to. That's why they have to retire at 57. That is a grind. That job is a grind every day. But this has been wonderfully bipartisan for the past 30 years. You know, uh, t- take a look at the last FAA administrator position. They, they, they first nominated a guy that had no business being there, but he was politically correct. Then the next guy they finally did nominate, great guy, has a background, but he said nothing in three months of what he's going to do. He's just a sitter. And we can't do that anymore because now lives are at risk, especially now when the FAA came out and said they're going to lower their hiring standards and literally go after people with psychiatric problems for the FAA. <laughs> Well, wait a minute. Does that mean they don't have them already? They do, but apparently they're going to have ones that can be clinically proven to be that way. Whoops. Well, without making too much fun of this, because it's not a funny subject, you know, for the FAA to say they're going to convene a panel to discuss, you know, uh, mental states of pilots or mental health issues for pilots, that's nothing new there either. For them to convene a panel on what they're going to do to audit 
safety inspections and the production line at Boeing is nothing new. You don't need a committee for this. You need to go down. No, 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 look. You need a bulldozer to go into that FAA office and take it down. Just bulldoze it out of existence and bring in people that really want to do the job, you know, at the top and give the people some guidance at the FAA. Remember, it's a political appointee at the top, and it's been political appointees for years. So no, we're not as safe as we can be, but what we really need is to stand up and say, let's get this fixed and stop playing with it. I agree. Um, You know, there's certain things that drive me a little nuts about the protocols at the FAA. For example, if the NTSB makes an urgent safety recommendation, and by the way, I think you and I would both agree that the NTSB does great work under usually terrible and adverse conditions to try to find the probable cause of an accident. But they don't do they don't just that they don't just do that. Once they find the probable cause, if they can, they figure out what the solution is and make those recommendations. Well, under the way the FAA works, the NTSB is not a regulatory agency. So they make a recommendation to the FAA on something that's an obvious fix to make it better, and the FAA has up to 90 days to respond. And then on the 89th day, what does the FAA often do? Not always, but often, they say they're going to study it. Well, that constitutes an acceptable response, but it's not solving anything. See, that's just it. And, And again, look, the airlines are partially responsible for this. They know this is going on, but you you keep... Listen, the airlines today, they work for Buttigieg. They work for the FAA, not the other way around. And, and because of that, what that means is they really can't take a shot at them. In all fairness, they can't. But I think it's about time they stood up and said, guys, it isn't working. Now, Nick Callio at, at A4A, uh, he's a great guy. He has stood up and said, we got to fix it, fix it, fix it. But what we have to have now is the airline industry itself stand up and say, Mr. Buttigieg, not good. We're unsafe. You've got to fix it and say it just that way. Well, or Congress has to say it because they control the purse strings to give the FAA the resources, the budget, the staff that they actually need. Absolutely. And there's way too much politics involved in this and way too much acceptance of mediocrity. And it still goes on. I mean, the, the, the recent FAA announcement that they're going to go after people that really aren't qualified for the job in order to be diverse or whatever it is. That's putting us all at risk, and that has to stop. All right, let's go beyond that now because, you know, this is – we're dealing right now with, you know, more than 170 planes, the Boeing 737 MAX-9, that have been grounded. Uh, but I would argue, and I'm not saying this with, uh, with any sort of uh, hesitance, I, I would argue that they have to look at the assembly line of all the, the manufacturers, not just for this particular product type – especially when we live in a world where so many manufacturers are outsourcing so much of the work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, airplanes are outsourced. It's a bit about, well, you know, some of those parts come from overseas. Well, of course they do. We live in that world right now. But the point is this, and, I, and I, I've talked to people about it. We had some doors or whatever, bolts that weren't, weren't tightened. That's not the problem. The problem is why weren't they tightened? What else isn't being tightened? And that's where we have to really dig into it. Now, the point is, this is in, in the U.S., it's 144 airplanes out of a fleet of about 6,200. Oh, that's not a lot. That's not a lot. But the fact of the matter is 30% of Alaska's fleet, and it's on the ground. What's that going to do to Alaska? What's that going to do to Kalispell, Montana? 
who might not have air service. It goes through this and through this and through this. But the fact is, we had Boeing that has repeatedly been shown not to screw airplanes together properly. So we stop everything and say, what is wrong with Boeing? That has to be done right now. Oh, and it, and it is being done right now. Uh, we, 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 but we have to continue the, the surveillance and the, and, the, and the, well, we have to continue the focus because the focus, it, it can get easily de- diffused if we don't realize where the root problems are. And this is something that affects everybody. You and I would both agree, Mike, that we've just celebrated the 30 safest years of commercial aviation since commercial aviation began, and that's something we should all celebrate. No doubt about it, not arguable, it's great. Uh, Now, we may not be able to improve on that batting average because it's so good, but the real question is, can we maintain that batting average? And my argument is right now, based on the protocols and the safety culture at the FAA, not to mention the manufacturers, the answer is no. Well, well, it it is, and it gets back to everything else. You know, there are various layers, if you will. So when the FAA fails to warn an airplane by hitting another airplane, bingo, we have crews that are trained to do that. You know, the the Japan Airlines thing we saw is typical, where you have an airplane on fire and they get everybody off the airplane because we had a safety crew. We can't keep relying on that. We have to be able to be in a position where we can trust the FAA not to make these mistakes but the fact of the matter is, and it has to get back, this new guy, Mike, whatever his name is, running the FAA, I've seen nothing from him about what he's going to do. He's just warming a chair and letting it run him, and it's putting us at risk. And by the way, I, I will make this an open invitation to Mr. Whitaker, that's his name, the new FAA administrator, that he's more than welcome to come and talk, talk to us on this show and tell us what he's going to do. I'd love to hear it. And, and uh, we make that invitation every single week. So, and that's, that's a fair, kind, and open invitation to start a conversation that needs to happen. And so, well, the, uh, problem, though, with that, the problem with your invitation is he knows you're going to ask him hard questions. You're not going to sit there like a Diane Sawyer, Sawyer or somebody and smile at him with everything he says. If he says something, you're going to ask him, what do you mean by that? He ain't showing up, Peter. <laughs> well, the invitation's still there. And by the way, Diane Sawyer's asked some pretty tough questions. Don't, don't kid yourself. But in any case, oh. well, that's another discussion. But in any yeah. case, um, we now have uh, a situation where airline schedules have to be triaged. Uh, flights get canceled or combined. There are not enough replacement planes as substitutes to take up all those frequencies. And, you know, the good news is it's happening now, at least, as opposed to summer, but they got to fix that, too. Again, scheduling and the problem we have now, we've seen it in the last two weeks, when you've got the kind of weather, cold weather we've seen, you can't prepare for that completely. But the real issue is, too often, I've covered this before, customer service at an airline today is more and more farmed out to people who know in two years I won't have a job because I'm with a contractor. People aren't trained to handle customers properly. That's where the core of it is. If I know I won't get out for six hours and they tell me that, I know that. But if they say we're not sure, and that's where we're at right now. And it's even, you know, big airlines like this, but but some of these the discounters, which I hate that word, you know, they're hiring people literally off the street at whatever little they can pay them, and they aren't even trained. That's where we have a problem. And, and that's why people get nuts saying, I, I don't know when I'm going to li- be able to leave Omaha. So I think that's in the airline's court right now. Mike, hold on to that thought for a second. We're talking to Mike Boyd, the uh, president and CEO of the Boyd Group International. When we come back, more with me and Mike 
making friends at the airlines as always right after this have a travel question or problem just email peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air more information on what you've heard have a travel question or comment just log on to petergreenberg.com now here's peter and welcome back peter greenberg here with you as ion travel continues from denver with our good pal mike boyd but what you point out is the airlines are not looking at it the way we used to fly they're not being competitive uh they're not being competitive on service uh, and they're certainly not being competitive on transparency. And so as a result, I haven't been on a flight in the last, I'm not making this up, in the last five months that's either left on time or arrived on time. Yeah, I see. The, the, the real issue is, and again, let me be a little clear here. The big thing is whether it arrives on time. Who cares if it arrives, leaves early or leaves late as long as you get there on what they promise you. But the point of the matter is, it's not the, just those failures. It's what do they do when it happens? Do they have the expertise to be able to handle you? See, I maintain when you have a meltdown like we've had over the last two weeks with weather, they should be prepared for that. Yeah. Not just say, well, we, we, got, we got overwhelmed. You're in an overwhelming business. What's wrong with you people? But the point of the matter is, is how are we going to save some money on customer service? How are we going to save some money here? You know, again, when I was a ramp agent at American Airlines back in the dark ages of the 70s, I mean, you always said hello to the customer and used his name or you got nailed. You always said thank you to the customer. You were trained properly to write a ticket and, and rebook people. That's not the case today. No. In fact, the other day I was flying out of uh, New Orleans and uh, I walked up to the counter and, and was going to check my bag. And they said, oh, no, you can only do it at the kiosk. I said, then what do you do here? He said, I only handle kiosk problems. And I said, <laughs> and I said, well, did it ever dawn on you that the kiosk is the problem? He said, everything you want can be done at the kiosk. I said, no, it can't. He said, let me walk you over there and show you. I said, I can't wait to do this. He walked me over to show me. And about two minutes later, he said, uh, you should come to the counter. <laughs> so the point is, that, and then I said to him, you realize, of course, that every time they add a kiosk, that's five minutes closer to you losing your job. And then I have nobody well, to yeah. talk to. Well, you know, I've, I've never had a kiosk treat me rudely, but I've never had one able to answer my question. So it works both ways, you know. But <laughs> I understand the kiosk issue. I really do. I, you know, if you can get it, you have to have somebody behind that who knows what the devil they're doing. And again, it, it's like, they hire people off the street that work for Fred's Ground Handling Services and everybody, but it's out there. It happens, particularly in discount carriers. And when something goes wrong, it really goes wrong because they're not trained properly. And they know, who cares if you fly this airline again? I work for a company in two years. They're going to rebid this contract, and I'm out, out of a job. Yep. And, and there's nobody there who's empowered to give you a yes. They're only, no, they only can tell you no. We, when we did customer service training, we did it for a lot of airlines. Uh, the whole idea, we have to have discretion and the ability to take initiative. That's gone now. You can't waive a rule. 
You can't waive anything. It has to be approved. It's like the president of Delta. This is a long time ago. Said no waivers and no favors. Well, that's really customer service. Uh, years ago, I had a, a VP at American Airlines, gone now, thank God, who looked me in the eye and said, we don't care. Customers will do business our way. You can't have that anymore. You've got to be able to, to treat people like they're human beings rather than, you know, cattle at the Gainesville Cattle Barn in Texas. We're talking to Mike Boyd of the Boyd Group International out there in Evergreen, Colorado. So as a passenger, Mike, what's the first thing you change? The first thing you change is you make sure the people that are getting you on that airplane are they're able to take care of things if something goes wrong, that every question can possibly be answered, number one. Number two, a lot of this boarding stuff they go through is absolutely nonsense because it makes it hard to get on an airplane. Uh, I'll be honest. I mean, Delta has a system now, I think it's called flight family communication or something like that, that literally makes it much easier for the whole operation to get people on and off an airplane. Good for Delta. We need more of that where everybody communicates. We're here for the customer. And that means getting the airplane out on time. I mean, Delta is doing that. Other airlines are starting to. But it has to be something where the customer does not feel like, I said, a cat, cattle at a cattle barn. And too often they're at they're always at a disadvantage. we got to take that away let the customer feel like they're in charge. Well, anytime I get to a gate and they have 11 different boarding groups, I get out a book and start reading it. Well, you know, and you see, that's the problem. You know, I, we did a lot of work for Royal Air Maroc. I had to fly them a lot. You know, and their boarding system is simple. It's get on. <laughs> it worked fine. You know, it's like, in, in several languages, get on, but nevertheless, get on. But a lot of this stuff, it's like 14 layers of people trying to uh, trying to get on an airplane. It's all about overhead space. You know, that's what it's all about. And, you know, and United did away with it because I talked to Scott Kirby. But up until about five years ago, it really was five lanes of people would line up an hour ahead of time. Now, United's improved that. But it really looked like a cattle barn with people snaking down the hallway, waiting to get their overhead space and hope, hope they could get on to get it. Well, you know what? You've given one bad airline, whatever that bad airline is, a good idea now, Mike. I'm, I'm a little worried about you now because you said there were no rude kiosks. That's that's probably coming next. <laughs> You're right. One that talks back to you. You were on to something. So, like, we, we ain't got no complaint department, idiot. One will say that to you, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's the human experience. I love it. Mike Boyd from the Boyd International Group. Always a pleasure, sir. And I'll see you in line at the next airport. Got you, sir. Have a good one. You Bye-bye. got it, man. Thanks. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here back with you as Eye on Travel continues from the Hotel Clio right here in Denver. And, of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. Here's one from Marcy, and it's a little complicated, but I'll read it. My husband and I booked an Avalon cruise from May 31st to June 8th of this coming year, 2024, with an additional night in Amsterdam, and we'd fly home to Chicago on the 9th of June. Our reservation was for an active and discovery cruise on the Rhine and Basel and Amsterdam, blah, blah, blah. 
Uh, airfare has now gotten to be unaffordable for us. The war in Ukraine, uh, intense spinal surgery, which has made it difficult to be active. This will not change. We are on a very tight fixed income, and the $500 down payment is non-refundable. The travel insurance, which we did not purchase, would have cost us more than $500 anyway. We don't have $500 to just throw away. We are at this point very uncomfortable taking this trip, and in addition, the airfare has not come down sufficiently to afford it. Is there any way to get Avalon to make an exception to their rule and refund us our money, or must we forfeit it? Any help you can give us would be appreciated. Well, Marcy, I'm not going to play the role of the cruise line here, but I'm going to play the role as your trusted advisor and tell you there's a reason why they have travel insurance. That's number one. Uh, To be able to give you trip interruption and cancellation insurance in the event of something like this happening. But you didn't buy it. You're very lucky that they only wanted a $500 deposit to begin with. I'm sure this cruise is a multiple of that in terms of two, two people in a cabin. So here's your situation. If you feel that you physically can't go, then you shouldn't go. Uh, If it's about the war in Ukraine, that's another issue which we can discuss. It shouldn't have any impact on your cruise at all based on the itinerary that you sent me. Uh, As far as airfares are concerned, why didn't you buy uh, the airfare when you bought the cruise or buy it through the cruise line? Uh, Or you could buy the airfare to another destination, not necessarily to, to Amsterdam or or leaving from anywhere else on the river, but maybe travel to a secondary city by plane and then take the train to, the, to, to meet the ship. Those are other options to keep the fares down. But going back to your principal and core issue here, a non-refundable deposit is clearly noted by the cruise line. And to their credit, they didn't ask for a non-refundable deposit of $3,000. They asked for one of 500 which seems to be reasonable. Uh, At this point, I know you're not going to like this, but either take the cruise, find a decent airfare to go. By the way, I promise you, you'll enjoy yourself. Or write off that $500, and next time, whenever you want to take a trip that has a sizable investment, buy the insurance. That's what it's there for. Of course, as I always tell everybody, don't just buy it online or don't buy it through through Avalon Cruise, buy it through a travel agent and a third party because that travel agent can then walk you through the hieroglyphics of the policy language to make sure there are no age exclusions that hurt you or pre-existing medical conditions that hurt you or even destination uh, exclusions that might hurt you. That's what you have to think about, okay? So bottom line, right now, if you don't take the cruise, I don't really think Avalon's going to make an exception here because... You had all these other options which you chose not to use. But let me know what happens. And if you do take the cruise, be sure to let me know what happens because I want to make sure you have a good time. All right, so there's that one. All right, now there's another one. And here's one from Wendy who says, My son and two friends are traveling to Paris and Corsica this summer to visit their friend. They are planning on leaving out of LAX in June or July before the Olympics. Do you have any recommendations on flights and accommodations? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, Wendy Anybody who goes to Paris either right before or during the Olympics is asking for trouble in terms of price sticker shock. So if they really still want to go to Paris, don't have them fly from L.A. to Paris. Have them fly from L.A. to London and then take the train, the Eurostar. And that can get them not only to Paris, but further east, as even get them closer to Corsica. They can even buy a URL pass before they leave the U.S. and do all their traveling by train. 
Uh, and that way, they can come back from a place in Europe, not London. Remember, there's that, that dreaded tax that they do for anybody leaving a UK airport that can set you back a couple hundred dollars. So, But going to London, there's no tax, at least not that tax. So have them get a cheap flight to London, then take the train to get them not to just to Paris, but, to, to, but throughout Europe, and that'll get them closer to Corsica, and then they come back from another uh, international destination in Europe back to L.A. That, that's my guidance on that. But again, you also asked for accommodations advice. Accommodations in Paris, right now, an apartment that might rent for $300 a night in June, July, and August is going for $1,000 a night and more. So be careful of that, too. I hope that's helpful. Again, Paris is going to be very, very expensive this summer, and there's no two ways around it unless you don't want to stay there. That's my idea for the train. When we come back, Denver now is a Michelin star restaurant city, and we'll be talking to that chef when we return from the Hotel Clio right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Hotel Clio right here in Cherry Creek in Denver. Of course, we're always happy to hear from you. Just reach out to me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com. With your name, phone number, question, or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. I've been coming to Denver, as I think I may have said earlier in the show, since 1971. And uh, so many changes. But I will tell you one of the biggest changes. When I was here in 1971, the definition of sautéed was deep fried. It was uh, a steak and potatoes place. You could get a lamb chop. I think you could. Now it is a gastronomic explosion. Uh, we're talking every possible cuisine you can imagine, but cutting edge. And my next guest knows a little bit about that because he just got a Michelin star at his restaurant called Beckon. In fact, it's the first Michelin star in Colorado, isn't it? It was the first in, in Colorado. Unbelievable. Yeah. Duncan Holmes, welcome. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. So you heard my introduction. I mean, I can't walk six or seven blocks without finding great food in Denver now. That's true. How'd that happen? Uh, I, I, uh, specifically, I'm not uh, sure. I think it's. Um, I think Colorado is a, a great centrally located uh, geographic um, location uh, that provides a, a great place for people like myself, for culinarians to, to come and, and uh, have a, um, a location to, to explore their craft. But what brought you here first? Um, like, many, uh, like many, like myself, um, I, I came from San Francisco. I came um, as a, I always wanted to be here in, in Boulder specifically, I think like many folks. Um, and I just had an opportunity that I, I sort of acted on and, and um, once I got to Boulder, I, I found that it was a, it's a beautiful place and, and there's a, a great food, uh, a, a young food scene here, but there's a, a community of folks that want to support those, those uh, endeavors. My first gastronomic experience in Boulder was the Alfred Packer Cafeteria Okay. <laughs> at the University of Colorado. You know oh, that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. The only cafeteria ever named uh -huh. for someone who was convicted... Of cannibalism. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and, and the food at that cafeteria sort of fit that bill, but we've come a long way. Yeah. 
So when you when you when you landed, I mean, you you worked in San Francisco, you worked in Sweden, yeah, right. Uh, you were in, in in Denmark too. In Denmark, yeah. Is there such a thing as Colorado cuisine? Um, I, that's a that's a good question. I think that kind of ebbs and flows. I mean, I think I think Colorado cuisine is is you know in this moment in time sort of blossoming and developing. I think it's that it's I think it's really starting to take off. Um, in the last five years, um, Colorado cuisine is is um, you know, I think a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of great lambs. We've got uh, beef, um, lots of local grains. That's all locally sourced. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of starting, you know, to define what is Colorado cuisine. Exactly. And then, of course, you brought all your repertoire with you. It mm-hmm. wasn't like you were just starting here. Uh, ingredient-based cuisine. Ingredient-based cuisine. Explain that. Uh, I think that's just something I've taken with me from my time in San Francisco, um, working at a restaurant called Saison, um, you know, where the chef there, Josh Skeens, always used to kind of uh, talk uh, about making the ingredient taste more like itself. Um, and I think that and that's... And not to overdo it. Right. And not to overdo it and just make the, make the thing on the plate shine, make sure that it comes from a great place. And I think that that's, you know, a trickle down from Alice Waters' sort of uh, ethos. Um, Alice Waters, of course, from California and Berkeley. Right, exactly. Uh, and, and I think that that's, you know, being the, the California uh, kid, I suppose, is something that's kind of stayed with me. Um, and I think that it's become part of my style is, is to, to distill and to kind of um, just focus on, on what's on the plate and, and you know, m- Oftentimes, it's easy just to, to add and add and add and add, and it doesn't necessarily... But that gets you in trouble. It doesn't necessarily make the dish bad, or, or um, I think it's just easier to veer off course. Um, a lot of the times, the dishes are delicious, you know, but you could be eating anything. Um, when I it's mean, with enough sauce, sauce, I yeah. suppose I could eat cardboard. Right, right. You can, have, uh, you can eat whatever you'd like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is there one... Th- I always like to ask chefs this, so you're no exception... Is there one thing on your menu that you said, this is going to be great, everybody's going to love this, and nobody ordered it? And conversely, is there one thing you put on the menu saying, do I really have to do this one, and everybody loves it? Yeah. Um, I think Beckon Beckon is a a pretty well-oiled machine, and it's it's a a sort of controlled environment, um, being that it's a tasting menu, and sort of we, uh, what, what you... What we serve is kind of what you get. Um, I think that one one thing that we you know that we deal with time and time again is is a squab. Squab is a, a little game bird that I just adore. Uh, that I think uh, is is similar to a duck to a a, a quail. Um, it's something that I've always loved, and I think that squab is something that that we occasionally put on our menu that. I am so excited about, but I, I think that that has to come with a little <laughs> bit of caution because not everybody's going to like that. Squab with caution. Right, right. Duncan Holmes from Beckon right here in Denver. Thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on the Michelin Thank star. You. Thank you. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. When we come back, more from the Hotel Clio in Denver as Ion Travel returns right after this.
You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Eye on Travel continues for this first weekend of February 2024. If you're just joining us, let me tell you where we're broadcasting from. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 39 degrees, 44 minutes north. 104 degrees, 59 minutes west. One of our regular favorite destinations, Denver, Colorado, and the Hotel Clio. Relatively brand new hotel. Used to be the JW Marriott, but they really spiffed it up in the best neighborhood I can find in Denver, Cherry Creek. I shouldn't say that. One of the best neighborhoods, but I still love it. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Uh, you know, there's a, it's interesting that happened, oh gosh, between 2020 and now, so over the last four years, there's a reasonably good chance many of you have been solicited with offers for major bonus miles or points if you just signed up for another credit card. Every major bank's in the game, whether they're directly affiliated with an airline program or not, or they're a points card or a cashback card, they're still offering these major mileage bonuses companion passes, you name it, up to 100,000 airline miles if you just sign up for one of their new credit cards. So I got to warn you, as attractive as those offers may sound, I want you to keep in mind that while they will keep their promise of sending you those bonus miles or points for signing up, you're getting a credit card that charges an average minimum of 24% interest. And some of those cards can go as high as 30% on unpaid balances. Now, consider this, and this is a little scary. Only 54% of Americans pay their credit cards in full every month. And everybody else is on revolving credit at those interest rates, and they can never catch up. In fact, right now, unsecured credit card debt in this country is $1.4 trillion dollars. That's all unsecured credit and people just, they can't get ahead of it, right? Now, if you don't pay your bill every month, then consider this. The real cost of those miles, assuming the airlines actually let you redeem them, that's an entire other subject we'll devote more time to, could easily wipe out the real value of the miles or the frequent flyer ticket that you eventually earn. Now, one caveat here. If you can pay your credit card balance in full every month and continue to do so, then you should go ahead and consider those mileage offers and the bonus points and everything else. But if not, it doesn't take long to do the math to realize you're going to get behind and you won't be able to catch up. So the idea of a free ticket just got evaporated. So I want you to know that because if you don't, you have a problem. Okay, now, one other thing I want to talk about before we go to your emails And that's this. It may surprise you to know that airlines are now updating their airfares about 250,000 times a day. 
That's not a typo. It's true, 250,000 times a day. And it's a system driven, not surprisingly, by algorithms that project demand year over year, set prices, but then have to adjust to movements in supply and demand. Sometimes they adjust quickly, sometimes they don't. But this also applies to hotel rates. So here's what I want you to think about. Anytime you book something online and then pay for it, you need to set some price alerts. Now, a lot of websites like Expedia, uh, Google, and Kayak uh, have the tools you need. They, they actually have the price tracking ability uh, that give you those tools to monitor those fluctuations and then to act on them, meaning you'll get alerts if the fares or room rates uh, drop, and if they drop significantly, it may allow you to possibly rebook your flights at a much lower fare or a much lower room rate at the hotels. Now, if you're running a car, there's a new site out there called Slash. It does about the same thing. It tracks the reservation rates uh, daily on rental cars and then monitors them and, and alerts you. So something you really need to know. Now let's go to some emails. Here's one from Steve who says, Our oldest daughter is thinking of taking a trip to Columbia, and we were wondering how safe you think it would be to travel there. Well, I go to Colombia all the time. Uh, the old days of Pablo Escobar are over. Uh, even Medellin is a remarkably safe and fun city now. So whether you're going there or you're going to Bogota or you're going to any of the other cities, you'll be in good shape. Uh, and uh, they have completely transformed their hotel offerings. Uh, but you want, one thing you didn't tell me is, is your daughter going alone or with a group? or with a significant other. That will determine some of the places that she might want to reconsider going to in Colombia, but it shouldn't have her reconsider going to Colombia as a whole. So get back to me, let me know that, and I'll get you some more specific information. But in general, no problemo going to Colombia as long as you pack enough common sense. And that applies to Colombia, or Calcutta, or Cincinnati. All right, here's one uh, that says... Uh, Oh, here, I got one for you. Here's one. I have duplicate tickets. This is from Lynn. For a church trip from Chicago to India, scheduled to leave soon. I have called the travel agent, American Airlines and British Airways. Everyone says only someone else can help. Wait a second. Lynn, you want to get a refund on the duplicate ticket I get. But if you call the travel agent, that would make me believe that you booked it through a travel agent. That's what the travel agent is for, to go through that Separate the duplicate bookings, make sure you maintain the, the one reservation, and you get a full refund on the other. So American Air, Air, Airlines and British Airways will probably tell you that it has to go back to the person who booked the trip, which I'm presuming is the travel agent. That's what you need to do, okay? Remember, in this case, the travel agent is not just your agent, but the agent of the airline. So if you can follow that up, you'll be in good shape. It's, it's always a problem. In two areas. One, who booked the original reservation? And two, who was the originating airline, no matter who booked it? See what I'm saying? And that applies, by the way, to baggage claims, right? If I check in on a flight on American and it changes in New York to a British Airways flight to London and I get to London and the bags aren't there, the person who needs to help me is American Airlines. They were the originating carrier. Now, American will tell you it's got to be British. Uh-uh. It's got to be American. And conversely, if you start your flight in London on British Airways and Connected American to go back to L.A. and your bags aren't there when you get there, guess who has responsibility there? It's British. Uh, now, there are some airlines that won't even accept uh, connecting bags. 
but that's another issue. But in this case, the same thing applies to purchasing a ticket. It's the original purchaser of the ticket who, who handled the transaction, meaning you and the travel agent. They represented the airline. They took your credit card. They processed, I'm assuming, both duplicate reservations, which means what were they thinking? Weren't they on top of this? Now, if it wasn't the travel agent, then my question is to you, Lynn, why did you call the travel agent? They had nothing to do with it. So I guess, again, if the travel agent booked this ticket and then did the duplicate ticket, they're the ones who need to help you, and I hope they will. Stick around, everybody, because when we come back, we're going to be joined by our pal Gary Leff, the founder of ViewFromTheWing.com. He always has funny stories, and I guarantee you, without a doubt, <laughs> this week he will not disappoint. Uh, again, Gary Leff from ViewFromTheWing.com. That's required reading for me. I hope it is for you. And we'll be back from the Hotel Clio in Denver with more of Ion Travel right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues from the Hotel Clio in Denver, Colorado on this uh, first weekend of February 2024. Time is flying. You can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And as always, I tell you to go to our website for one other important reason. The website is petergreenberg.com. And the important reason, our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world. Opportunities for you to give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities. And of course, here we are in Denver. Check out the Food Bank of the Rockies. They've been around since 1978. And boy, are they needed. Listen to this. They give out 178,000 meals a day to people in the Rocky Mountain region. That'll give you an idea about food insecurity. But you can volunteer to help out, distributing food, working in their warehouse. But the most important thing is you're helping the people who need it the most, and you're helping the people who live here. So the benefit to you, other than that good feeling, is who better to tell you about Denver than the locals themselves. It's a win-win. If you want more information, that's easy. It's foodbankrockies.org, or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global scale. My next guest, always happy to have him on. He's the founder of viewfromthewing.com, and if you're an aviation nut like me, it's required reading. You should all get on it and look at it. His name, of course, Gary Leff. Welcome back, Gary. Hey, good to talk to you, Peter. Good to talk to everyone out there. And listen, I, got, I had to laugh. You had a story, and, and I, I have a little addendum to this. There's an airline called SpiceJet. And uh, it was, uh, I, I, won't, I won't paint the picture. I'm going to let you paint the picture. It was flying from A to B, as jets do, and as passengers do, one of them went to the lavatory. Why don't you pick up the story from there? So this is a Boeing 737 spice jet, and it's flying from Mumbai to Bangalore. And this is only an hour and 25-minute flight, shortly after takeoff. And by the way, this is a flight that leaves after midnight to begin with. It's delayed. Shortly after takeoff, a passenger in seat 14D decides to go to the lavatory, as one does. Unfortunately, he locked himself inside the lavatory. 
and he couldn't get out. Banged for help. <laughs> Flight attendants come, try to get him out. They work on this for like an hour and finally pass him a note. And the note says, sir, we tried. <laughs> we tried our best to open the door. However, we could not open. Do not panic. We are landing in a few minutes. So please close the commode lid and sit on it and secure yourself. As soon as the main door is open, engineer will come. Do not panic. And so at about uh, 3.30 in the morning, flight lands in Bangalore. And indeed, they did have mechanics on site who were able to break him out of the lavatory. Although there is one that I promised you an addendum, didn't I? And here's the addendum. Even though he was stuck in there for, let's say, two and a half hours or whatever, he probably had more space in the lavatory than he would have had at his seat. That's probably, that is it's not even probably true. That would be true. Uh, and no seatbelt, though. No seatbelt, no but, seat but nobody kicking the seat behind him, nobody spilling anything on him, nobody throwing up. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for booking the bathroom the next time you fly. Look, I have seen passengers who lock themselves in the bathroom for longer than they need, and you start to start to wonder what problems or challenges they might have, and they come out as though they just want a little bit space and, and, and distance for themselves. It's better than a middle seat. You know what? It breaks up the boredom of the flight. <laughs> and, and, and often not any less thinky. Oh, my God. Okay, we'll move on from that. But I love, <laughs> but I love that story. Um, oh, my goodness. And, of course, you want to ask, from a typical American passenger perspective, did he get any compensation? I bet he got nothing. This is Spice Jet. I'm pretty sure he got nothing. <laughs> In fact, they'd probably charge him extra for use of the lab. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, we're dealing with the outcome of the judge decision in the Boston court blocking the JetBlue Spirit merger. Uh, we're still dealing with whether or not the U.S. is going to weigh in on trying to block the Hawaiian Airlines-Alaska Airlines merger. What say you, Mr. Leff? You know, I, I honestly thought that, the, um, that, that JetBlue had a pretty good case at trial. And I think they've got a pretty good case if they appeal. It is... You know, certainly the direction that antitrust has gone lately to block just about anything, although the Biden administration has lost its share of cases outside of aviation in court. Um, the challenge here is, you know, Spirit Airlines is worth a lot less than it was when JetBlue probably overpaid by a lot for it. You know, they continue to, because they they were trying to best a deal uh, with Frontier, you know, they guaranteed a huge breakup payment, $450 million, even if they lost the antitrust case. They got, they're paying out big money, and the longer they drag this on, the more they're paying the spirit shareholders. They pay $0.10 cents per share a month or about $10 million a month just to keep going. So if they want to appeal, it's going to cost them not just the legal fees and the time and the lack of another strategy. The truth is I think you know, JetBlue is not doing well financially. They don't have a clear strategy, and it's not obvious that overpaying for Spirit was going to be their salvation either. They may be better off. This may save them the merger integration costs, the distraction. And frankly, you know, they just you know this is you know not where they need to be focused. 
and they need to get their operation in order before they take on the you know, additional complication of trying to merge with another airline. This is an airline that operates less on time than any other U.S. airline. At least that was the case throughout all of 2023. And so, you know, they, before they before they buy someone else, they got to fix their own mess. Uh, so I, I think it helps them in a way. Uh, not super great for um, Spirit shareholders who were getting paid, you know, more than the company is worth to do the deal. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, antitrust in this case you know, may benefit uh, owners of the acquiring company. But let's also discuss one of the overriding reasons that not get, doesn't get talked about a lot about why JetBlue wanted this deal to happen in the first place. It wasn't about acquiring an airline that was a completely different culture from JetBlue, a completely different passenger base than JetBlue, a completely different fare structure than JetBlue. It was because Spirit flies the same equipment that JetBlue flies, which means their pilots are also trained to fly that equipment, and that if JetBlue went to Airbus and said, we'd like 300 more planes tomorrow, they'd have to be waiting about maybe seven or eight years. If they buy Spirit, they get them tomorrow with pilots already trained to fly them, and overnight they can become a major international player and maybe not even operate any of the routes that Spirit operates today. Well, they, you know, they still wouldn't be one of the four largest airlines in the country, right? So, I mean, they would be larger. They would have more planes, they'd have more pilots, um, but they would be taking those planes and pilots and taking seats out of them. Uh, JetBlue's business model over a period of years hasn't been more profitable than Spirit. So they were going to convert uh, planes into a less profitable business model and spend a lot of money to do it. So they were going to solve some constraints that would allow them to grow, but not obviously grow profitably. And that's really the challenge. Now, on the other hand, it's sort of a weird take for you know the government to oppose a merger and say what's the, the worst thing for consumers would be to give passengers who were flying on Spirit airplanes more legroom, right? They were going to take seats out of planes and make the planes more comfortable, and the government said that's what's bad. Uh, well, so well, the reason why the like, government said that was bad was because they thought that the fare structure would be anti-competitive. And that and that and that fares would be raised about forty percent. Well, I, I think it's very fair to say, you know, we all benefit whether we fly Spirit or not. We all benefit from the existence of Spirit. It drives down the fares that all the other airlines charge, and it would be taking a bunch of airplanes, you know, a couple hundred planes, out of the low cost model that helps drive down uh, airfares. Um, very true. But if you really care about competition then you would think that the first place to start is removing barriers that the government has in place to competition. Right? So we want to increase the capacity of air traffic control. Hire more air traffic controllers. Get more capacity in the skies. We want to make it easier to build gates, build runways. You know, and the, the reason why it's not as competitive is you just can't just you know, start another airline or even grow an airline or get more gates. These are very scarce resources that the government either owns, controls, or provides service for. And if we want to prioritize competition, we should prioritize competition rather than um, you know, sort of suing at the margin between uh, you know, smaller airlines that want to uh, combine. It, yep. I don't think it would have been good for either one. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't excited about the merger, uh, but it just seems a weird place to put a stake in the ground over airline competition when there's a lot more that we could do that could make a real difference for fares and, uh, and service opportunities for customers. Gary Left, the founder of ViewFromTheWing.com. Always interesting to hear what you have to say about this as this story continues. And when we come back to Denver, we're going to tell you about Rhino. No, not the animal. 
no, not some Republican in name only, <laughs> a very special arts district right here in Denver. When we come back, Iron Travel continues right after this. Mr. Leff, thanks again. And we'll be back right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues from Denver. And of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Every time I come to Denver, and I'm not saying this because I'm trying to promote anything. I actually believe this. I'm blown away by a number of things. Not just the growth, but the way it's been growing. The new neighborhoods, the new districts, and in particular, the art districts. Um, and there are new galleries popping up all the time, new uh, installations, and of course, it's walking. You can walk around, and it's great. Joining me now, the Executive Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Rhino Art District, Ali Sharp. First of all, Ali, welcome. Second of all, explain Rhino. Hi, Peter. That's a big question. So Rhino stands for? <laughs> Rhino stands for River North. Uh, it is in the River North area of Denver, and that's based on a city plan that happened 20 years ago. So, But at a, when I first came to Denver, um, and I'm not going to tell you how many decades ago that was, there was no Rhino. I mean, it, right. it, it was all derelict, and it was just, it, there was nothing there. Well, you're correct. It's a formerly industrial area. Um, and one little tidbit is that Rhino is actually a not a neighborhood in Denver. It's an art district that overlays five historic neighborhoods. Okay, thanks for confusing me. <laughs> but, but the point is, it's relatively new. It is relatively new. Um, you know, it started about 20 years ago as a small collection of artists who moved into this formerly industrial area, uh, lots of vacant warehouses where they chose to set up shop and start making their art. They wanted to bring folks down to the district, um, hence naming it Rhino Art District. So a lot has happened in those 20 years since then. Speaking of 20, you've got about 20 galleries. Yes, absolutely. Twenty gal over twenty galleries and artist studios with working artists. And the best part about it for me is it's all accessible. It is. It is. It's one square mile, I like to say, of condensed coolness. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, let's talk about. Okay, now that you've opened that door, how cool? Who's there? So who's not there is what I like to say. So in that one square mile, we have a plethora of cool restaurants um, and unique adaptive reuse buildings. We have, like you said, over 20 galleries and artists, working artist studios. Um, we have design firms and we have street art just about everywhere in every nook and cranny. Well, Denver is one of the great capitals of independent artists. Is it? It is. <laughs> I mean, because people get, have the freedom to, to display, to exhibit, and to experiment. Yes. So in a given, let's say, weekend, somebody traveling to Denver for the first time, can they do all of Rhino? Absolutely. But beyond that, they could come back again every month after that and see something different every time they come. Because it's really a rotating outdoor art gallery. They could see a new installation next time. There's always new small businesses popping up as well. What's the most unusual installation? 
the most unusual installation? Hmm, that's a good one. So we have several installations throughout the district. I would say unusual um, is not unusual, but you could come to um, the alley between 26th and 27th in Larimer, and you can see art just about on every single wall, which I think is unique to um, the city. On every single wall? On just about every square inch of that alley. But there's also an art park. There is an art park, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Tell me about it. So the art park is a is a really interesting collaboration between the city of Denver um, and the Rhino Art District. So it is a city of Denver park. However, the community came together and said that they didn't want just green space, um, but they wanted to keep the existing buildings in the park and turn that into a community resource. And they've done it. They've done it. We've done it. We've all done it. <laughs> Do you have gallery nights? There are gallery nights. So within the park, there is a branch of the Denver Public Library. It's a really bright and cheery. See, now that's, I wanted to talk about that. <laughs> okay. Because I'm a huge library geek. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's a library. I live in New York City. There's a library literally about 300 feet from where I live. Fantastic. And I grew up in that library. And, I, and I, anytime I need to get away from my own place... I just sneak into the library, mm -hmm. right? And you do that here. Yeah, absolutely. So the branch of the public library that is in the Rhino Art Park also houses a zine library. So it's a very unique branch, and those are connected over to eight affordable artist studios that are run by Redline. What is Redline? Redline is also a local nonprofit arts uh, organization, and they have artist residencies in their main space, which is just outside the Rhino Art District, and then this is their satellite campus. Now, can somebody come here, visit the Rhino Art District, and sit down and also paint? I'm sure, absolutely, why not? Right now, because you have you have the independent artists there. They've got their studios. Yeah, when there's uh, there's art classes you can take throughout the district. Um, we actually just got a brand new uh, pottery uh, center called Community Clay. So there's all sorts of things. See, you can I do miss in that one when day. I was growing up. My mom put me in pottery class, mm -hmm. and I you know, I was a terrible potter, uh, but I love ceramics and I love what came out of the kiln. Yeah, um, most people would laugh at it, but I, it was mine. But you can do that here. Yeah, you can absolutely get your hands dirty. You can make a whole day of it. I'm getting my hands dirty. I love it. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that More works, ways than one. That absolutely works <laughs> for me. Ali Sharp, the Executive Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Rhino Art District. It's not a neighborhood. It's a district surrounding lots of neighborhoods. But just ask anybody and they'll point you in the right direction. It's well worth the visit. Allie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And when we come back, more from the Hotel Clio here in Cherry Creek as I on Travel returns right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here as Eye on Travel continues from the Hotel Clio in Cherry Creek in Denver, Colorado. Of course, you can always reach out to me. You know the drill. Email me, peterpetergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We always solve it right here on the air. 
My next guest, I don't come to Denver without getting her on the show because she always has her ear to the ground. She knows what's going on. She's known what's going on for 45 years now as the co-founder and editor of Westward, Patty Calhoun. How are you? It's my pleasure to be here. So the thing I love about Denver, and I said this earlier on the show, it's always changing. You know, when I first came here, when I was 21 years old, you know, there was no real Cherry Creek, though you know Cherry Creek. There was no Rhino. There was no Lodo. There was, there was Union Station, right? But, I mean, things have exploded in neighborhoods that didn't even exist before. And then neighborhoods that changed, like Cherry Creek, which was a really old outdoor shopping center probably when you first came. Yeah. And now is the hippest, wealthiest, nicest part of town. And has really made a strong comeback from the pandemic, unlike, say, downtown, which is still kind of bumping along. But it's still here. It is still here, and it will be doing better again once the mall project is done. But, you know, I go back to the days where the the tattered cover was down there. I could spend hours in that bookstore. Um, And, of course, the restaurant scene only exploded in the last 15 to 20 years. Right, exactly. Denver Restaurant Week was started 20 years ago Come on. at the end of February. Yeah. And it was interesting. They started it because at the time there was a national poll about how people saw Denver. And people in Denver saw the restaurant scene worse than people outside of Denver. So they started Denver Restaurant Week to remind people there are great places here already. And now there are 20 times more. Wow. And of course... We've had one of the chefs on earlier in the show uh, from Beckin. I mean, a Michelin star restaurant. Right. So for our first year of Michelin and five restaurants in Colorado got the star as well as the sustainability awards and other recommended. It's been wild. Has tourism changed here? Well, tourism has changed the way it's changed around the country because of the pandemic. But as I understand it, it is coming back fairly strong. Lots of conventions booked, tourists here. I just walked through this hotel, which is jammed. And a lot of that is people coming, spending a couple days in Denver before or after skiing. And now we're beginning to get a new kind of tourism. Ten years ago, we had marijuana tourism when we were the first state with legal sales. Now we're Although, beginning... Although, oh, wait, wait, even we go to the next thing. Let's talk about that first. Because okay. I tell everybody, if you're going to come to Denver or Colorado and you want to buy pot... Consume it in Denver. Consume it. In Col- Don't take it on the airplane because you'll go to a state where it's not legal and now it's a felony. That is true. But as we've understood it, when you go through DIA, when you go through TSA, they are generally very gentle if they find anything. They might take it from you. They might keep oh, it. Oh, I'm not talking about oh, the TSA land- here. Oh, right. You go land in Arizona. See you later. Right. Well, not Arizona. It's legal there now. But other states, like if you're driving through Kansas, for example, you can be in a lot of trouble. And that's what I tell people. Right. All right. So So consume it. All right. So you you have marijuana tourism still going strong. Still going strong. Now 22 other states, I think, have legalized marijuana. Not just medical. That's like a 38 or 39. But there's that many states. So tourism is cut back somewhat. But it's very rare that someone coming skiing here doesn't want to know where the nearest dispensary is. But last November, Colorado decriminalized psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Uh Uh-oh. In fact, you can grow them if you work really quickly in your hotel room, I think. You can grow (laughs) magic mushrooms. You can give them to friends. You can't sell them. But what we're beginning to look at is a developing tourism trade where people will come here and sign up with some kind of service that 
will microdose, will give you magic mushrooms. They have to give it to you. You're paying for other services like well-being or massages or spas, but you can get magic mushrooms. So the mushrooms. mushrooms are a bonus. Mushrooms are a bonus, yes. Just a happy bonus. Unexpected. No pun intended. Okay. But the point is, that's another form of tourism. It is, and it's going to be really strong by 25 when the new laws start coming in. People are very interested. Oregon's passed it, sort of, but not the way Colorado has. What's changed in terms of where the restaurants are? Because used to have all the restaurants were like in Lodo, and now they're everywhere. They are everywhere, and what's happening is a lot of the Lodo restaurateurs are opening second places in the suburbs. They're opening them around because they're, they're finding cheaper rent in the suburbs. They're finding a lot of people who've moved there to raise their kids but still want the good meals they've had for the last 20 years. So you're finding low high, Highland, uh, over east in the uptown area, Cherry Creek is exploding with restaurants. They're all over now. We're talking with Patty Calhoun, the co-founder and editor of Westward. And when we come back, we're going to talk about where you go and where you hang out. When we return as Ion Travel here in the Hotel Clio in Cherry Creek returns right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you again as Ion Travel returns on this first weekend of February 2024. Hard to believe we've already gone through January that fast. We're talking with Patty Calhoun, the co-founder and editor of Westward. All right, I want you to take off your editor's hat, put on your local hat. Where do you go hang out? Well, just today I went to my brother's bar, no relation to my actual brother, down at 15th and Platt. It was right by where gold was discovered in Colorado, and it's actually the oldest continually occupied bar, 1880s, my brother's bar. Great burgers, no TVs, classical music, just a down-home place that classical still Classical music? They play classical music. They have little concerts sometimes. All right, so you go there for a brew and a burger. And just to meet up with a bunch of friends to blab. It's a good, easy spot. And that's the end. That's at Platt Street, which is kind of between Lodo, Union Station, and the Highland area, all booming now. But so to find old places that still exist is great. Now, Casa Bonita is back. Casa Bonita is back, although challenging to get in. For those who try, you have to actually sign up on a list, and they will let you know when you're invited to make a reservation. They're so popular, they actually couldn't handle making reservations. So you have to wait, then try to sign up. And I've been trying up for two months and not been able to get a reservation, although I snuck in with a friend. Okay, stupid question. Is it worth it? It is absolutely worth it to see it, especially because for those who went there a long time ago in Colorado, explain it. Explain it's it. it's a pink entertainment palace. The first one was actually in Tulsa in the late '60s, and it's just like a giant Mexican Disneyland of bad food, or it used to have bad food. It now actually has very I love good it. food. A Mexican Disneyland of bad food—that's a marquee for you. 
Exactly. Oh, that sells tickets. But they, um, the people who bought it are the South Park creators who are from Denver. I mean, from Colorado. Trey Parker and Matt Stone, they bought it. It's like an episode of South Park for them to buy it. In fact, they've celebrated Casa Bonita in a 2003 episode. They made it world famous. And it is just cliff divers and bodegas and underground mines and pirates and caves and shoot outs and gorillas. It's just an extravaganza. And let's not forget the, the bad Mexican food. And it's better, it, Dana Rodriguez. It's better, it's better. Yeah, Dana Rodriguez, James Beard nominated chef, was hired to be the executive director, and she overhauled everything, but they still serve endless sopapillas, which have always been the crowd pleaser. <laughs> Biggest challenge you can't get in. Wow, that's a tough problem to have. It's a good problem to I have. I know. But I just, the natives are getting restless here in Denver. What I like about Denver is it's a hub. You know, 40 minutes away, you're in Boulder, right? You want to go to Red Rocks, right? Red Rocks is like, the quintessential concert arena. Oh, it's fabulous. It's world famous. And it's actually a Denver Mountain Park. So it is technically part of Denver, although it's in the town of Morrison. Built natural. I mean, it's a natural amphitheater, but the work project, Works Project Administration back during... The WPA. Yeah, the WPA. They recreated it and made a whole camp out of it. It's beautiful. I remember going there in 1973 to do a cover story on Bette Midler. Because she was performing there with her opening act, Barry Manilow. And then I went back, uh, Bonnie Raitt. I went back again, Dan Fogelberg, may he rest in peace. What an amazing concert that was. The, the acoustics there, the atmosphere there, it's, it's, uh, it's seductive. Right, you sit there and you look out over the town of Denver. You look out over the plains. It's just beautiful. It's magic. You know, the Beatles played there, did not sell out in 1964. Really? It was the only, I think it was the only concert on their tour. They didn't sell out. And of course, they never played there again. For a while, rock and roll was banned from Red Rocks. I think it was after a riot at Jethro Tull. I have to check for sure. But for years, they didn't have rock and roll. But now, it's packed. Oh, they're probably... Over 200 concerts there a year. And the weather's great. And even when the weather's horrible, it's beautiful there. Do they still perform? Technically, they often will. Like, we had New Year's Eve concerts there. People will perform in rain if it's not too bad, occasionally in snow. But spring through fall are the biggest seasons. For someone who's never been to Denver, what will be their biggest surprise? That it is not technically in the mountains is always one of the first surprises. If they haven't prepared, you see the mountains as you come into DIA. You see the mountains as you drive into Denver. But you're still a half hour away from actually being in the mountains. That's the biggest surprise. I think the second biggest surprise is maybe that you don't see horses on the street. It's not a cow town. It is not a cow town. It still has a lot of people wearing cowboy boots. It has kind of a laid-back atmosphere that is certainly more west than it is east coast, but it is not a cow town. And then there's the art scene. The art scene is, oh, it's great right now. Museum of Contemporary Art, the Denver Art Museum, Clifford Still Museum, the Kirkland Museum. The art is amazing, and it's right at the center of town. And that's just the museums. Then there are the galleries. The galleries are doing really well. There are galleries down here in Cherry Creek. The theater scene with the Denver Performing Arts Complex is, it's the biggest performing arts complex, except I think the one in Minnesota. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's all year round. And it, that is definitely all year round. There are usually about five productions going on there. So other than my brother's bar, any other place? 
I have to say, I am a fan of bad bars, and uh, I've been going to the <laughs> castle a lot, which is in the suburbs, old bar, and it's closer to my mother's house. So I've been there while I've uh, been repairing my home. Patty Calhoun, the co-founder and editor of Westward, thanks for joining us as always here in Denver. That music means we're out of time for the whole show. Let's thank Amanda Morris, our producer. Of course, Anthony doing the boards right here. Jesse Davis, we wish him well on his new trip to Saudi Arabia. Caroline Campbell, Abby Schermacher, and of course the entire staff and crew here at the Hotel Clio. We will see you next week, everybody, from another remote location somewhere around the world. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.